today we're going to be looking at specifically, but that's okay. So while you're finding your place there, I want to share a story with you that I think uh, fits our narrative here for today. There was a farmer in Hungary who went to his pastor and he complained, life is unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do? And the pastor answered, take your goat into the room with you. The man was incredulous. But the pastor insisted, do as I say and come back in a week. So a week later, the man returned looking more distraught than ever. We can't stand it, he told the pastor. The goat is filthy. The pastor said, go home, let the goat out, come back in a week. A week later, the man returned, radiant, exclaiming, life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute of it now that there's no goat. There's only nine of us now. You see, contentment is oftentimes more a matter of our perspective than our circumstances. But even among God's people, true contentment, my friends, can be elusive. To grumble about our circumstances is to challenge the love and goodness of our Heavenly Father. To be discontented implies that He has not provided everything that we need. Discontent, you remember, was the sin of Israel in the wilderness. God had just miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He was miraculously meeting all of their needs. They're in the middle of the desert. He's providing food. He's providing water. There's manna from heaven. He has provided protection for them from the most fierce and lethal military country in the world at that time. And what did they do? They grumbled and complained about everything they didn't have. They grumbled to complain how difficult life was. And if you remember what their threat was, they threatened to actually return back to Egypt, back to the slavery again. You know, the Puritans used to say that a true believer loves the Lord and uses the world. But a professing believer loves the world and uses the Lord. And that is, that is, how you can tell much about a person's spiritual state from their heart, from where their desires are, from what is their attitude, uh, or you know, what is their perspective is probably a better term. What is their perspective? What is their worldview as they walk through life together? Are they set on the Lord? Is Christ your treasure? Or are they set on the world, on the material blessings, money, things, stuff? the size of your house, how new your car is, how, how, uh, how updated your clothes are. Well, the author of Hebrews in this passage wants us to love the Lord and use the world rather than using the Lord to get us what the world says we're supposed to be loving. And by the way, that is one of the great, great mistakes of the health and wealth gospel, isn't it? That it has turned Christianity into using the Lord to get something you want more than the Lord. And which is material blessings or physical health or prosperity or influence or or status or recognition, whatever it is. But the author of Hebrews says, that's worldly. That's not the way a true believer thinks. That's how a... 
That's how a professing believer may think, but a true believer wants to love the Lord and use the world. A true believer wants to deploy the resources that God has given to them. A true believer wants to take delight in the Lord. And take delight in the treasure of the Lord instead of using the Lord to get us the things the world says we should have. Well, that's where we're at in our passage today. As we're uh, turned, hopefully you found your place now, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. And let's just quickly recap the four verses we got here. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that. We've done that the last couple of weeks. Remember, Hebrews chapter 13 is all about the evidences of your faith. In other words, remember, he's been challenging them. Are you a true believer or are you a professing believer? Which is it? Did you just make a profession of faith, but now you've been lured away? Now the persecution comes. Now the things are getting a little more challenging. You're tempted to back away. You're tempted to move away. Or are you a true believer? Was your profession of faith real? Are you going to live out your faith no matter what? And so we saw that chapter 13 is all about the evidences of faith. These are the things that should appear in our lives if we are truly living the faith. If we are true, a true believer, these are the kind of things that should be evidenced in our life as believers. So in verse 1, we saw that living out our faith means that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That should be manifest in all of us. People should be able to tell that we love one another, and that we have a Christ-like love for one another. We're interested in each other's lives. We're willing to be a part of each other's lives. We're willing to pray there and be there and show up when things are difficult and rejoice with you when things are glorious and weep with you when things are, are challenging. Matter of fact, the Greek is actually keep on continuing to love one another. The expectation is, is that we're already doing this. This isn't something new that we've got, we need to kind of formulate. This is something that marks us as a true believer. So we're to keep on continuing to love one another. In other words, we're to live as if our fellow believers are family. That's a term we use quite a bit here at PBC. We are family. That's a biblical term. That's a biblical description of the church. We are a family, and we are to love each other like you are family because you are. In verse 2, we saw that living out our faith means that we demonstrate hospitality to strangers. And we saw he referenced back to the book of Genesis. We have two examples there, right? We saw the first one was in Genesis 18 when Abraham welcomed the three strangers, right? One of, what, one of which we know uh, was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we saw again right after that in Genesis 19, the two angels continued on to Sodom, and then Lot greeted them and offered the same kind of hospitality to them as well. So no doubt the author has these two things in mind, these two incidences in mind, when he writes that showing hospitality to strangers that some have entertained angels without knowing it. Does that necessarily mean that every time somebody knocks at the door that they're an angel? No. But it means we're to imitate Abraham's example of hospitality to others, especially those in the household of faith. Verse 3, we saw that living out our faith means that we are to demonstrate compassion to those who are suffering. 
if you remember chapter 10 and like verses 32 to 34, he's talking about the persecution that these believers have went through. They were paying a great price for their faith. Matter of fact, that's why some of them were tempted to fall back uh, to Judaism. They're willing to apostatize, to fall away from the faith, from their profession of faith, because things were getting a little rough. So he reminded them that their connection to the believers that were imprisoned was not just some symbolic thing. Oh, yeah, we're brothers. No, no, you're really brothers and sisters. And you, you remember at that time, who ministered to you when you were in prison? It was the church, my friends. It was your family. Lastly, in verse 4, we saw this last week uh, or two weeks ago. Living out our faith means that we demonstrate purity both inside and outside the covenant of marriage. Well, that brings us to our text today as we continue this idea of living out our faith or continue this idea of demonstrating evidences of our faith. So as evidence of our faith, we are to live out our faith with compassion for our brothers and sisters. We're to live out our faith with hospitality for strangers, especially within the household of faith. We're to live out our faith uh, with those that are suffering in the church for their faith. And we're to live out our faith in purity, both inside and outside the covenant of marriage. And finally, we close out this section with this thought this morning. And that is, as evidence of our faith, we are to live out our faith in contentment. In contentment. And that will be the subject of our text this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again for the immense privilege I have to, to be here, Lord, and to open up your wonderful truth. Lord, I thank you for every dear soul that you've brought here today, and I thank you, Lord, for those who are watching at home and are worshiping with us now. And I pray, Lord, that you would be in our midst here now as we, uh, as we dig deep into the truth of your word. And Lord, as always, we pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. That we wouldn't just hear this message and think, well, boy, I know a couple of people need to hear this. No, Father, we would do what you tell us to do when we hear your word, and that is to listen and then apply it to our lives first and ask, Lord, what would you have me do with this? How should I apply this to my life in a way that brings you honor and glory? That's our heart's desire, Lord. That's our heart's desire every Sunday we meet and gather and worship. So, Father, be with us now again in this hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's look at our verse, first verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. And I'm just going to stop because we're going to do verse 5a and then 5b and then 5c and 6 together. So here's verse 5a. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Make sure your character is free from the love of money. So our first point for those uh, following here, taking notes, true believers live their life free from the love of money. True, true believers live their life uh, free from the love of money. Now, every time we hear those things, we have to ask ourselves, is money itself evil? No, the answer is no. A lot of people run to 1 Timothy 6.10 but I have to tell you, it is probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. And it frequently gets 
quoted as what? Money is the root of all evil. But let's look at that verse, shall we? First Timothy six ten. Just keep. We're just going to look at it briefly. Keep your thumb there at Hebrews. And here we see that that is actually not what the verse says. What it, what does it actually say? Well, First Timothy six ten, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, see, that verse is actually very helpful to us, isn't it? As opposed to the misquoted version there. It's far more helpful and, of course, biblical. Notice the prohibition here is, is against the love of money. The prohibition is not money or even having money. It's when we're loving having it that it becomes a snare for us. There are lots of wealthy people in the Bible. Uh, you know, Job was very, very wealthy. Uh, Abraham was very, very wealthy. Solomon was very, very wealthy. David, actually, as king, was very, very wealthy as well. I mean, there is a lot of wealth. And God does not condemn having the money because that money is a blessing from him as well, right? It's just what he has provided in your life. It's the love of money. So it's when we covet having money. It's when we fix our hopes and our affections and our desires, when we place our security in our money. And or when we covet that or, or it becomes an idol for us or anything else for that matter. But anything that we covet more than Jesus is where the trouble really starts to multiply for us, my friends. You know, Charles Spurgeon said one time, I've been in a lot of prayer meetings where people have shared their testimony. And I've heard a lot of people share how they have sinned. I've even had people come to me personally and make a confession of their sin. But in all my life, in all the prayer meetings I've been, in all my years as a pastor, I've never had one person confess the sin of covetedness for, to me. I found that interesting. See, we can take a walk through Scripture, and we can see what covetous did for Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, or what covetous did for Achan. Remember what covetous covetousness did to Judas and also what it did to Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and dropped dead right in front of the church. Coveting is a very serious sin and my friends, God deals with it very, very seriously. And one of the most common forms of covetedness is the love of money. Now why is money so, the love of money so harmful to us. Let me just give you a couple reasons here. Money, the love of money can lead to apostasy. We just saw that in 1 Timothy 6.10, right? People can get so consumed with the love of money, they think, you know, I don't want to stay here where God has placed me because I really would feel a lot better, Lord, if I just had more money. And so I know that you've perhaps called me to do this or you've uh, you want me to be here now ministering to this group of people, but I can make a lot more money over here. And so uh, some people actually fall away from their faith. They just go, it's just too hard. I don't want to live this life. I can, I can, it's easier to be in the world and make a lot of money, and my life would be a lot more comfortable. And so they fall away from their profession of faith. 
Remember the parable of the, soil, the sower? We see that in Mark chapter 4, right? Where the coveting of riches is the direct response to the falling away, right? The cares of the world, right? The pleasures of the world. Come, oh, okay, got to go. It's just too much. It's just easier for me to just stay in the mainstream here than to walk this narrow path that you may have called, that you've called me to. Here's another one. Every one of God's commandments have been broken because of the love of money. Has someone, has money caused someone to worship it rather than God? Absolutely. Has money caused someone to disobey God? Has money caused someone to dishonor their mother and father? Has has money been at the root of an adultery or uh, stealing or lying about others for money or just plain coveting what other people have? I'm just topically going through the 10 quickly here, but you could do that research of your own, and you're going to find the Bible rife with examples and perhaps even your own life where people have traded their testimony for money. Uh, Creflo Dollar was, an, is, I think he still is, an American televangelist. You may remember this story. He was the founder of a World Changers Church International in Fulton County, Georgia. And uh, this is a few years back here, but he had a, pri- he had a private jet, first of all. Then he ran off the runway while he was landing in uh, the United Kingdom. Nobody was hurt, fortunately. But to replace his old jet, a dollar launched a fundraising campaign to get his followers to pay the approximately $60 million that he needed for his new G650 jet, because he wanted a plane that was the fastest ever built in civilian aviation. But after receiving immediate and intense backlash, he ended that campaign. See, the problem is the love of money. Now, we might be here shaking our heads, saying, well, that That might sound ridiculous that anybody, first of all, would need a $65 million plane, but especially someone who claims to be a pastor, that you would need a $65 million plane to preach the gospel. But it also may seem ridiculous to a father of 12 in Kenya that I would need an iPad to preach my sermon or an iMac to prepare my sermon or shoes, for that matter, to walk around here. See, I don't know where that line is. It's somewhere between people going to bed hungry and, and pastors needing $65 million airplanes. My friends, we live in the most prosperous nation in the world, the most prosperous nation the world has ever seen, and yet it is never enough, is it? Someone asked John D. Rockefeller when he got his first million, you know, is that enough? When will you be satisfied? He said, well, at the next million, and then the next million. And then the next million. Well, how do we combat this in our lives? How do we stop loving money and coveting everything we don't have? Well, that's the second part of verse 5 here. So look at point 2, verse 5b. We'll look at that together. So make sure your character is free from the love of money. Uh, Part B, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. True believers live their lives content with what they have. The antidote, if you will, the kryptonite for covetedness is contentment. Incidentally, we're not born with contentment, my friends. You actually have to learn it. 
Remember what Paul said in Philippians 4.11? I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I have or I am. If Paul had to learn to be content, guess what? So do you. You have to learn to be content. But the world we live in doesn't make it easy, does it? All the advertising, all the billboards, all the you know, social media postings, everything. I tells us that I need this product to be happy. I need this. Th- if I just had this thing, my life would be complete. It'd be so much better. So we have to fight the influence of the world, or it's, or we're kind of swept away in all of that. We have to learn how to, how to cultivate contentment in our lives, just like the Apostle Paul. And to cultivate this contentment, you have to guard your thought life and constantly work at developing a biblical view of life and a biblical view of your possessions and a biblical view of your eternity. You have to avoid comparing yourself with others and recognizing that God is sovereign and he has a different purpose for different people. That just because that's the path God placed that person on doesn't mean that you should be on that path as well. You must trust in God's sovereignty, trust him to provide for all your needs, and keep an eternal perspective. This world, this ain't our home, as the old song goes. I'm just a passing through. Secondly, we need to acknowledge that everything we do have is because of God and is rightfully his anyway. That is extremely helpful, and we can wrap our head around that. Psalm 24, 1 declares the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Jesus frequently used the parables in which God is the owner and we are his managers or his stewards of what God has entrusted us to watch over, to manage for him. As such, the owner entrusts us with the resources that we are to use to make a profit for his purposes. So the owner lets us draw a reasonable salary, but to squander the owner's assets on frivolous things for our own use is being an irresponsible manager of what God has given us. And if we do that, we forget we don't own it anyway. We just work there. We've just been entrusted with this. Every good and perfect gift you have is from God. Every single thing, the clothes on your back, the, ref- the food in your refrigerator, the roof over your head, even the last breath you just took is because of our sovereign God. And we need to have this biblical perspective, my friends. Think about what's going on right now. Many of you are in a far different financial position than you were seven or eight weeks ago. If you've been looking at your investments Some of us aren't even looking. Are you completely distraught by that? Has that wrecked your day? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. We either trust in the Lord in the midst of difficult times, just like we trust in the Lord when he blesses us with material blessings. We trust in the Lord when he takes them away. Our hope and trust is in Jesus Christ, our Lord, not in the size of our bank accounts or our 401k. Do you believe that the Lord will provide for you, my friends? That's really what it comes down to. Because if you do, then have a peace and a rest about this. 
Here are a couple others that I want you to chew on, a couple other reasons. The key to contentment is not raising your standard of living, but lowering your desires. Express your faith in God by generously giving to others. That's another way to cultivate contentment. Or maybe you're saying, you know, well, I don't know, Pastor. I don't really feel discontent. I'm okay. So let me just ask you if you're really content with money. Here are some signs that you may be discontent and placing a lot of hope and a lot of focus on your material goods, specifically money. Are you constantly thinking, talking, or worrying about money? Do you envy others, friends, family, who have more than you? Are you constantly thinking about things you would like to own? Are you a compulsive shopper, owning lots of stuff you don't even use? Or are you in financial trouble or debt because of your spending habits? If the answer to those is yes, you may have to search a little harder in your heart and see where your treasure lies. One question that always comes up when we talk about covetedness versus contentment is, is it wrong to better our circumstances? You know, if if I'm willing to work hard, is it a bad thing to desire that, uh, you know, that with that would come better income? Or to phrase this in the opposite, should we be unconcerned about material things in our financial condition? Should we just kind of sing kumbaya and run through the daisies every day saying, the Lord will provide You know, we do see this tension in Scripture, don't we? On one hand, the Bible condemns laziness and calls us to work hard to provide for our family and our needs. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He reminded the Thessalonians of his own example of hard work to provide for his needs so he would not be a burden on them. He commanded them in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone's not willing to work, then he's not, should, shall not eat either. Wow, okay. But on the other hand, the Bible warns us about the dangers of wealth. Jesus shocked the disciples when he said, truly I say to you, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Paul warned again, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, many foolish, harmful desires which plunge men into ruin. (coughs) Excuse me. Here's what's important as you wrestle through these seemingly conflicting statements is what is your heart's motive for seeking more money, my friends? That's really what you need to get down to here. What is your heart's desire? Why is it that you believe that this is so important for you? Is it a good and a biblical reason? So are you seeking to meet legitimate personal or family needs so that you don't become a burden to your family or your church or your society? Is that why you want to do that? That's good. That's a good reason. That's a biblical reason. Are you seeking more money so you can give more to those in need or give more to the church's missions or give more to those to be able to minister the gospel more effectively. Again, another good and biblical reason. But if you're seeking more money because you're trusting wealth rather than the Lord for your present or your future security, then might I just lovingly tell you you're, you're a bit off course there. 
if you live in abundance but don't help the poor, you're committing the sin of the people of Sodom. If you're seeking contentment in money or things rather than God himself, you will come up empty. So be careful that you're not deceived by your own heart. My friends, you cannot be a lover of money and a lover of God. Matthew 6, 24. Find your treasure in Christ, who became poor to make you rich, not necessarily materially. Make your life goal not to be materially wealthy, but spiritually wealthy. That's the key. You know, one thing I've learned, uh, and hopefully I've learned something as I've gotten older, and hopefully wiser, is that if it has a price tag, it rarely brings satisfaction. Point number one, true believers live their life free from the love of money. Point number two, true believers live their lives content with what they have. Now let's look at the rest of verse five and verse six, because the author of Hebrews again takes us into the Old Testament and quotes scripture again. So he says this, Again, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? True. Point number three, true believe. True believers live their lives trusting God to provide all they need. True believers live their lives trusting God to provide all they need. The answer to your lack of contentment troubles is to cultivate a greatly enlarged view of God. Notice, he himself has said, or your translation may actually say, he himself has promised These are the promises of the living God who spoke the universe into existence, who cannot lie, who never fails. And the author mentions two specific promises. Number one, trust that God will never leave you nor forsake you. You can find the remnants of that in Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 through 8, Joshua 1, 5. Trust that God will never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised his ongoing presence. And listen carefully, he will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Others may leave us, but God will not and God cannot. He cannot, he cannot break a promise. He cannot tell a lie. He cannot tell you he will do something and then not do it. Even when we fail him, beloved, he never forsakes us. Praise God for that. You know, whenever I read that verse, I immediately think of that hymn, How Firm a Foundation, right? That soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. 
Beloved, there are no circumstances ever anywhere in which God abandons his children. Don't be consumed by your covetedness. Don't be consumed by your discontent. Our sovereign God is the helper of his people. He will meet your needs. Declare your hope and your trust in him. Covetedness and worry occur because of unbelief. Oh, what if this happens? What if I lose it all? What if that happens? By faith, you can enjoy peace and contentment. You see, the reality of that truth enables us to be content in all circumstances. Because I know no matter what I'm going through, no matter what happens, no matter if the bank account is overflowing or collecting cobwebs, whether life is steaming along and everything looks great and hunky-dory, or whether things look bleak and dark and I'm not sure what's at the next turn, my God and your God will never, ever, ever leave you nor forsake you. You need to cling to that, my friends. You either believe that or you don't. And if we believe it, then we should live like that. Very important. Having God is all we need for contentment. And he gives us one more quote to kind of hammer this home. And we find that again in verse 6. Notice he says there, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Don't fear man and what they can do to you. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, right? Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. There was a woman who said to the evangelist D.L. Moody, I have found a promise that helps me when I'm afraid. It's Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. D.L. Moody replied, I have a better one than that. Isaiah 12, 2. I will trust and not be afraid. That's the mindset of John Chrysostom. He's a famous preacher. He was brought before the Roman emperor and he was threatened with banishment. And so the great John Chrysostom was called before the emperor for challenging the emperor's authority. And the emperor said to Chrysostom, if you don't stop saying what you're saying, I'll banish you. And John Chrysostom said, this is my father's world. Where are you going to send me? The emperor said, okay, I'll kill you. He said, no, you won't. My life is hid with Christ in God. Then he said, well, I'll drive away. I'll drive you away from all your friends. And he said, I have such a friend in heaven who will never leave me nor forsake me. Then he said, well, I'll take away all your possessions. He said, no, you won't. But the Lord is my treasure. Do you hear what John Chrysostom said? He said, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do? What can even an emperor do to me? I have the king. That's a man who's content. And that's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to, that same contentment. I think of Martin Luther and that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Remember, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. My friends, I believe that if we're honest with ourselves, 
we have at times, perhaps many times in our life, battled covetousness and discontentment. We've been caught up in the things of the world and lost sight of where true contentment is to be found. Instead of being thankful for all the Lord has provided, how blessed we truly are, we focus on all that we wish we had. And I'm not just talking about money. It can be anything. Instead of thankful for the spouse that God has given us, we complain about all the things we think they could be doing better. Instead of thankful for the house over the roof over our head on a rainy Sunday afternoon, we drive by and wish that we just had a bigger one or a newer one. Instead of thankful that God provided a means for us to come to church, we complain that our vehicle isn't fast enough or cool enough or new enough. You know, when I was growing up, we used to have to chew those little red tablets. Remember that school? They'd come in, they'd have the little dental team come in, and then you'd, they'd say, well, brush your teeth, kids, and we'd brush our teeth, and then they'd say, now chew these red tablets. And I'm not sure how it worked. There's some sort of chemical reaction. But anyway, it would, it would stay red wherever you didn't brush properly. And so uh, and, and, uh, it wasn't very enjoyable, and it left this strong, unpleasant taste in your mouth. And They had us do this because they would it, it'd leave this telltale mark. Of all the places that were not clean, that we they needed some work. You know, when you're that age, you're just kind of like, okay, brush my teeth, all's good. And so, uh, but we recognized for ourselves just how much yucky stuff was still in our teeth. We wouldn't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, okay, I guess that's it. No, we actually had to go back and brush again and then chew another tablet until you got and brushed better. I don't even know if they probably do that today, but probably be some sort of lawsuit or something. <laughs> I'm not sure. In short, we, again, we chew these cha- these tablets and then respond to what we revealed, what they revealed. So in, in many ways, my friends, I think I share this story with you because I think that's what we need to do with God's truth. You know, when we, when we hear things like this whole little section here, am I really loving my brothers and sisters in Christ like my family? Am I really loving them that way? You have to answer that question. Am I, do I, am I really loving hospitality, especially for those in the household of faith? Does that describe me and my family? Are we open and loving? And do we put others' needs ahead of our own? When we have brothers and sisters being persecuted for their faith, are we willing to help? Are we willing to suffer with them? Come alongside them and help in any way that we can. Thankful that they followed the will of the Lord and put themselves in those positions to be able to proclaim the gospel. How about the purity of our walk, both in our marriage and before marriage? And how about this subject of contentment? Are we truly content? We have just a tinge of the love of money. Are we just kind of banking on that money being there as our safety and our security? More than we are banking on the Lord being there as our safety and our security. And do we live that way? Do others know that about us? See, I think that's very similar. You know, we chew the red tablet of Scripture and it leaves these marks that say, wow, there's some parts of my heart that are still unclean, if you will. 
not talking theologically, I'm talking practically in your walk. So when these things are revealed in our hearts, we need to respond in very real and practical ways. We can't make ourselves clean, of course. We cannot do that in our own strength. Besides, Jesus has already done that. Author of Hebrews has made that abundantly clear in the previous 12 chapters. Nevertheless, we do need to respond with a right understanding and for the right reasons. We need to respond with repentance in the areas where we've fallen short. We need to lay that before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I need to do a better job. You've, you've exposed the red, yucky stuff, if you will, in my heart. There's some dark things there that need to be shed and put into the light. Lord, would you help me with that? Help me. I repent of that, Lord. I, I want to walk in a way that's pleasing and glorifying to you. And we do that, my friends, not, not because we think it improves our status with him. Christianity isn't a performance-based religion. You, don't, you can't improve God's love for you. You can't improve your standing with God. That's bought, paid for. That, it is finished, Jesus said. We respond because we love him and because of what he has done for us. We respond because we're captivated by who he is. And we want the Holy Spirit to conform us, transform us more and more into the image of his son for his glory. Because we know that that's what God's purpose is in our lives. We want to yield more and more to the spirit's leading, yield more and more to his will in our lives. And for those and many other reasons just like that, let me encourage you this morning to not only hear what the writer of Hebrews has to say, but determine in your own heart what God has laid on your heart. These areas, are they evident in your life? And if they are not, repent of that and ask the Lord to help you in that area for his glory. How do we do that? What should it look like? My friends, you should live free from the love of money. You should be content in whatever God has given you. And you should live your life trusting God to provide everything you need. Guess what? He has done it every day of your life so far, and he will continue to do so. This is where true contentment is found. It's not the size of your bank roll. It's not in your stocks and securities. No. It's in the Lord. If your contentment is in the Lord, you will experience true joy and true contentment. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the challenge from our text. Lord, these six verses have been challenging, Lord. And if we have to look at our lives and say, are we really living our lives that way? Are we truly walking that way? It's difficult, Lord, at times to, to do that. We get caught up in the lures of the world. We get caught up in trusting the things the world says that we should be trusting. But, Father, you have called us to, to a different path. This is not our home. We are sojourners. We are travelers. We are pilgrims here. Our home is in heaven with you. And although we're not there yet, Lord, positionally, we are there. So, Father, I pray that as a body of Christ that we would indeed 
live out our life as people who have evidencing these things of faith in our walk. Father, help us to do that for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name we pray.